A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is dedicated in honor of the Lenevsky family, who are big fans of Jewish History Soundbites. There should be a basis for whatever we do in Yiddishkeit, some sort of tradition, text, psak, or custom which we rely upon when engaging in or refraining from a course of action. There has been much discussion on shul message boards about Rabbi Chil Michal Tukachinsky, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, regarding the Zmanim, especially on fast days. Of course, anyone can consult with your local halachic authority, but there are members of the community who rely on the Zmanim given by this great man. But who was Rabbi Tikachinsky in the historical sense? We'll find out in this episode. So it is um, rather rare that such a prominent place in accepted halachic practice by the wider community, uh, so diverse and yet such wide acceptance by someone who was, who was, not, uh, who was, who was well-known, but never a, I guess what we would call an A-list or, or uh, you know, uh, branded uh, as the, you know, the top, top-tier Pisic. Uh, we're used to hearing names of those who entered the pantheon of Psak Halacha through the ages. In recent centuries, let's say if we were talking about the 19th century, that a list like that might include Rabbi Yosef Chaim, the Ben Ishchai in Iraq, in Baghdad, Rabbi Yosef Shol Natanzun, the Shailomeshev in Lvov, in Galicia, the Chassam Seifer and his school, his students in Hungary, Rabbi Yitzchak Specter in Kovna of the Russian Empire, among others. And if we were talking about the, again, the most famous ones in the 20th century, it might include Rabbi Chaim Grzynski of Vilna, Rabbi Yaakov Chaim Sofer, the Kafa Chaim, and post-war, we'll have people like the Chazayin Ish, Rabbi Meisha Feinstein, Rabbi Shleim Zalman Auerbach, Rabbi Vadia Yosef, and so on. Now, the common denominator of all these well-known halachic authorities between these, and of course many more like them, is the fact that they were, you know, like these top-tier, somewhat universally acclaimed in varying degrees, well-known personalities, very often also in leadership positions in the Jewish people, and therefore, their lasting impact on Sakalach is quite understandable and even expected. And that's why the story of Rabbi Chil Michal Tukachinsky is so unique. 
Because although by all accounts he was a great Paisik, and a well-known one, but he was never on the same, at least in his own lifetime, never as, as a world-class one and considered the top one in the world, or even number two in the world in his own lifetime. And he's definitely not as well-known as some of the others I just mentioned. And yet his impact on practice halacha among Jewish communities worldwide, especially in Israel, where his rulings are almost universally accepted, and even in other Jewish communities around the world, it's, it's a vast impact. The times of day, zmanim and halacha, fast days, shemitah, customs, prayer, beis hamikdash, the calendar, and so many other subjects that he is considered either the last word or at least a major expert on the subject where his rulings uh, carry heavy weight. So it's worth examining his life and his historical context a bit to understand his role in the halachic development of the 20th century. Halacha is, 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 is just one facet of his leadership. He was also the architect and leader of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva and institutions, a leader of the Yerushalayim Jewish community of the old Yishuv, an author of many well-known and acclaimed svarim, an activist, a builder of Yerushalayim neighborhoods, a liaison between the holy city and Jewish leaders in the diaspora, and much, much more. So it's not just what time of day to end the fast day, it's actually a complete picture of a very unique and incredible individual, really a fascinating life and personality. Um, first of all, his name, uh, Tikoczynski, so, you know, there is, the, there is a town in Poland till today, you know, a nice quaint little shtetl in northeastern Poland, uh, called in Yiddish Tiktin, and in Polish it's Tikochin. And it's very nice. I always bring groups there. It's a beautiful, a huge, majestic shul uh, in, the, um, in, in, in the town, and a lot of famous rabbis were rabbis in the town, and there's so a tragic story outside the town. There's a mass grave where the Nazis murdered the uh, resident, the Jewish residents of uh, Tiktin during the Holocaust. So, but it's in Polish, it's Tikochin, uh, Tikochin, really. I think the 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 uh, the accent is on the second syllable, if I'm not mistaken. And in Yiddish, it's Tiktin. So the there's name, both of those names have entered uh, Jewish uh, Jewish life. People who came from that town, the founders of the Mir Yeshiva before it was the Finkel family. So for the first ninety years of it, the first pretty much century of its existence, almost a little about ninety years of its existence, the members of the Tiktinsky family were the uh, founders and 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 Russia Yeshiva of the Mir Yeshiva. So they're the t- Tiktinskis, so they they came presumably from Tiktin, and they used the Yiddish word. Whereas Bechil um, Michal Tikotchinsky, though he was not born in Tikotchin, but presumably his origins, I'm guessing, I didn't really look into it, but I'm guessing like hundreds of years before or something, or even less, his family came from Tiktin, Tikotchin, so it became Tikotchinsky. They used the Polish name, so apparently... Jewish families took on the Polish name of the town as well. Either way, let's let's get back to uh, instead of name origins, which is also a fascinating subject. Happen to to love looking into Jewish last names. If, it's, if it goes by town origin, town of origin, or occupation, or some other nickname, or other things like that, um, it's a fascinating subject. Either you're getting back to Michal Michal Tikachinsky. He was born in Lechowitz 
in then the Russian Empire. Today it's in Belarus. And that's where, of course, Mordechai Lechovitz, the great Hasidic uh, leader, uh, was from, uh, he, he, you know, the father of, of Slonim and Kaidnov and, and all kinds of other dynasties of, of white Russia. Um, so, Ramat Lechovitz, it's the same town. Um, so, Mikhail Mechotikachinsky is born there in 1871. He's orphaned at a young age, and that's why he ultimately moves to Jerusalem. His mother, Toiba, uh, was, was the widow um, who um, moved to her parents, who had settled in the Holy... I'm sorry, I don't know if was, his mother was Taiba or his wife. I could be getting mixed up here. Okay, either way, so she um, moves to to Yerushalayim because her parents had settled there prior. So at age 11, in 1882, Rabbi Hilma, the younger Rabbi Hilma arrives in Yerushalayim, and he'd never leave. He'd never leave the land of Israel once he stepped foot there. He never left. Um, he had a great love for the land of Israel. And this is Ottoman Turkish Palestine in the closing decades of the 19th century. Uh, so the world of Rabbi, of Rabbi Michal Tukhachinsky is, is the Jewish community of Yerushalayim, the Ottoman government, uh, the local population, the grinding poverty. It's not a great economy at that time. There's the old established Sephardic community. And then there's two relatively new Ashkenazi communities, the Hasidic one, and then the non-Hasidic one, which is known as the Prushim, the students of the Vilna Gain, which by now is, is, has expanded as well. Um, so this is when he joins. He joins the Prushim community. Um, and he eventually was to emerge as a leader of this community and leave his imprint on this specific community, on the Prushim, Ashkenazi, non-Hasidic community of the old Yishuv, of Yerushalayim in the within the Kailal Chalukah system, which I've discussed on other episodes, but it's taking place at a time when the winds of change are blowing in Yerushalayim. So that's also important to know that he's at this um, crossroads of history. The Lemel and the Elyon schools are already open, which is the new and more modern progressive schools. The new neighborhoods are being built outside the old city walls. The the Yishuv of Petach Tikva which is established by members of the old Yishuv, has already been built, is already being established from 1878, a couple of years earlier. There's a lot of change going on in the old Yishuv in Yishlaim, and Yishlaim would personify that change, that being connected to the old Yishuv on one hand, and that being part of the change as well. So this context of what the Ottoman Turkish Palestine looked like at that time is very important. He, of course, studies in the well-known yeshiva associated with the Prussian community of the old yeshiv, Eitz Chaim, and his primary teacher is Rabbi Shul Heshel Basan, who was also an interesting personality, who was to have a great impact on his future development. Rabbi Shul Heshel Basan was born in Yerushalayim to one of the early members of the Ashkenazi yeshiv in the city, and was one of the leaders in the successful establishment of Petach Tikva, which was built by members of the old yeshiv in 1878, which I mentioned. He was a self-taught, brilliant individual and recorded much of the history of the early Petach Tikva in his writings. He also worked at Nissen Beck's printing press in the city. And among other things, which is crucial to our topic here, he taught himself astronomy and even built himself a globe to be able to experiment and teach about geography and, and the place of the world in the solar system. And it was this subject 
that he shared with his disciple, the young Yechiel Michal Tukachinsky, which formed a lifelong love and pursuit of halachic astronomy, zmanim, and calculations in the young Rabbi Tukachinsky. In 1897, Rabbi Yechiel Michal Tukachinsky receives rabbinical ordination from the legendary rabbi of the Ashkenazi, old Yishev Rabbi Shmuel Salant, and he was then to become uh, his great-grandfather through his marriage to Yes, it was his wife who's Taiba, not his mother, unless it was both by some uh, quirk. Um, uh, his Taiba, a great granddaughter of Rabbi Shmuel Salant, uh, so he becomes uh, the rabbi's uh, great grandson by marriage, and and this is in this Taiba is a granddaughter of Rabbi Yamin Salant, the son of Rabbi Shmuel Salant. Rabbi Yamin Benish Salant was also an interesting personality in his own right. He became one of the first Jewish merchants in the Esrik trade. He and his partners would purchase the Esregim from Arab orchard owners and later on even Jewish orchard owners as the farming agricultural settlements developed among the early waves of Aliyah. Uh, while, and he would purchase them while they were still on the trees and then he'd ship it off from the port at Yafo uh, to Europe where they would be sold. So he essentially developed and held a monopoly on the Palestine Esreg trade for many years. He was also a builder of neighborhoods in the new parts of the city, primarily in the Nachlaot area. And his passing uh, at the turn of the century preceded his father, Rabbi Shmuel Salant's passing by almost a decade. Rabbi Shmuel Salant lived at a very old age. So Rabbi Yomin Salant's son, uh, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch, his daughter Taiba is the one who marries Rabbi And of course Rabbi Shmuel Salant is still alive when the marriage takes place and they enjoy a very close relationship. So that brings us to <clears throat> one of the major uh, parts of Rabbi Chilmach life, the, his involvement with the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. So the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva, this uh, story of a, of a fascinating institution, um, and where, where Rabbi Tikhachinsky studied and was eventually to lead, it was originally founded by Rabbi Shmuel Salan, shortly following his arrival in, in, uh, in Yerushalayim in 1840. 1840 is a big year. Uh, in many ways in Jewish history. There's even a very popular podcast about 1840. I'm not sure if this particular event of the founding of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in Yerushalayim is covered there. Maybe it will be, but you definitely want to check out that podcast. But until eight, until Rabbi Shmuel Salant founds Eitz Chaim in 1841, um, after his arrival, he arrives in 1840, I think the founding is, is short, you know, 1840, 41. Uh, until then, every bunch of parents in the Ashkenazi old Yishev in the old city would hire a Malamed and an impromptu cheder would be established in someone's apartment. Rabbi Shmuel Salan's vision of Eitz Chaim was a centralized school divided according to age with material appropriate for each age group with Malamdim hired, teachers hired for the students and it was eventually located in the Churva Shul courtyard as part of the Prushim community shul and Shmuel Salan's Bezdin was all in the same complex in the center of uh, of Jewish life of the Prushim non-Hasidic Ashkenazi Old Yishev community in the Old City of Yerushalayim. Remember that in 1840, the Old City, old city of Yerushalayim is the entire city of Yerushalayim. There is no new city yet. The first neighborhoods outside the Old City walls are only built in 1860. So though Eitz Chaim is founded as a primary school, it eventually is, includes a yeshiva and a kolel for married students as well. So it had the whole package, educational package within its institutions. And it belongs to the Ashkenazi non-Hasidic Prussian community. And many, many, many 
famous and important and colorful personalities were associated with it over the centuries as teachers, as administrators, as alumni who studied there. So many that it would be impossible to even attempt to profile them in the context of this episode. Some of the more famous personalities associated with the institution at the educational level, not alumni. Alumni is a whole other story. That's a much longer list. But just in teaching capacities, various different teaching capacities or administrative capacities include, and this is far from exhaustive, I just want to give a flavor of names that were associated with this institution over the centuries, Rabbi Shaya Badeki, Rabbi Moshe Nechemi Kahanov, Rabbi Chaim Mann, Rabbi Suzanne Meltzer, Rabbi Ari Levin, Rabbi Rom Yankov Zalaznik, after his father, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Zalaznik, Rabbi Mordechai David Levin, the Darchi David. Interestingly enough, Rabbi Aaron Cutler, who officially succeeded his father-in-law, Rabbi Suzanne Meltzer, upon the latter's passing in 1953. So on Rabbi Cutler's frequent visits to Israel, he would actually deliver shiurim in Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. So a few years before Shmuel Salon's passing, in the early 1900s, he appoints his great-grandson by marriage, the younger Bichil Mechatikachinsky, who presumably Shmuel Salon recognized his, his uh, uh, abilities, his leadership abilities, his, his energy, his motivation. He was someone who was, able, who was destined to become a great leader. So he appoints Bichil Mechatikachinsky to be the overall administrator and boss of the entire Eitz Chaim operation. In 1908, he embarked on one of the most ambitious projects of his entire career. He went ahead and purchased a massive piece of property on Rehov Yafo in the rapidly developing new area of the city. So they're leaving the old city, they're leaving the Churvashul area, right off of Nachlaot. A year later, the Machane Yehuda Shuk, the market, begins to form next door. So it's in, in a major part of the developing uh, new city, a uh, uh, new city area of Yerushalayim. And uh, with Rabbi Chilmachotekajinsky's uh, vision and broad perspective, he was way ahead of his time. He was progressive. He endeavored to achieve what every, what presumably is every yeshiva institution's dream, a self-sufficient funded operation. And believe it or not, in the grinding poverty of Yerushalayim, what was considered to be a very backward Jewish community, the old yeshiv, that's where it was achieved, a self-sufficient funded Institution. To that end, um, Rabbi Chimachatikajinsky rented out stores in front of the property on Rechov Yafo, um, and, 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 you know, because it was developing as a, as a market area. And then to the side of the property, as an addition to the emerging shuk. Uh, and until today, that, that, I mean, to, today Eitz Chaim doesn't own it, but the, when you go to the main entrance of the shuk on the left side, those stores are originally the Eitz Chaim rentals. They're not part of the original Machne Yehuda Shuk. And all that rental of all these stores uh, provided an income to the Eitz Chaim institutions. By the way, there was one yeshiva in Lithuania that was also economically self-sufficient. That was the Kelm, uh, Talmud Torah of Kelm in Lithuania. And they had owned, they owned real estate in Kovna. So that's also an interesting uh, tidbit. Either way, the property was huge and included another progressive element, a yard for the children to play at recess. Also interesting. The yeshiva and kolo facilities were housed at the campus as well. In fact, other institutions would use pieces of the property sporadically. I believe that Merkaz Harav of Rav Kook, who Rebichil Mechotikajinsky was very close with, used the facilities occasionally for Yom Neirayim, for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, uh, for a period of time. To further enhance the yeshiva's self-sufficiency and their funding, Rebichil Mechotikajinsky purchased real estate on the city's outskirts, 
and built the Eitz Chaim neighborhood, Shechunat Eitz Chaim, in 1929, which still exists. It's still standing right under that big bridge, the railroad, the light rail bridge at the entrance to Yerushalayim, and it's down the block from the central bus station, so you can check out those ancient buildings if you're in Yerushalayim next time. The rent for the, these these apartments went to the Eitz Chaim institution's funding, and if Tikhachinsky himself resided in this neighborhood, it became like kind of his his place. And now, this was way out on the outskirts of Yerushalayim at this time, and its distance from the old city prompted him to delve into another issue, halachic issue, uh, one of his most controversial and not followed halachic uh, rulings. He stated that the distance of the neighborhood made it outside the biblical Jerusalem, and therefore one should observe Purim on the 14th day of Adar and not the 15th like in the old city. Until this very day, there is supposedly, I've never checked it out, but supposedly there's a minion in the Eitz Chaim neighborhood when they read the Megillah on the 14th day of Adar. But this psak of his was never accepted. Um, as a member of the old Yeshiva of Yishalayim, who was also very much current with the times, he lived a life that was a cross between the classic old Yeshiva conservatism and traditionalism on the one hand, and on the other hand, modernity and change. I mentioned already some of his changes. But perhaps the biggest contrast was expressed in the the way Eitz Chaim itself functioned. Yiddish remained and still does remain until today the language of instruction, with no concession to modern Hebrew whatsoever. And yet Rabbi Tikachinsky was one of those old Yisha figures who was not opposed and even somewhat supportive of the Zionist cause. Not of the secular Zionist cause, obviously, but uh, he was concerned about secularism. But he therefore had the Israeli flag flown from Eitz Chaim on the Israeli, in Israeli Independence Day, Yom Hatzmaut, every year. And this brought protests from the more conservative elements of the community. The practice was eventually stopped, but I believe that it was only stopped after his passing in 1955. So he had a tremendous love for the land of Israel and refused to leave it under any circumstances following his immigration as a child. Along with that, he was very close with Rav Cook as well, as were most prominent Jerusalem rabbis at the time. Following his passing, um, his son, Reb Nissen Aaron Tikachinsky, replaced him as the titular head of uh, Eitz Chaim Institutions, where he remained until his passing over half a century later, uh, only about a decade ago or so. It is important to note that Yerichel Tikachinsky even delivered a Torah class, Gemara classes in Eitz Chaim, aside from all his administrative duties. He was a leading fi- figure in public activism in the Jerusalem Jewish community for many years. He was liaison to the great Torah leaders of the time. There's letters, loads of letters from his archive, uh, correspondence with literally every single Jewish leader in the diaspora, um, which many of them went up on auction recently. Uh, a rich resource into both the personalities he was in touch with, along with the myriad of topics that he had to deal with in the public sphere. But perhaps what he's most known for is his halachic positions. Well beyond Eitz Chaim, um, his most enduring legacy is his incredibly fruitful halachic legacy through his books and pioneering sack in several areas of halacha. The areas of halacha that he became most well known for are the laws of mourning. Gesher Chaim is the book that he authored on that. In fact, the street that the city of Yerushalayim named for him in the Makar Baruch neighborhood is not named Tikachinsky Street, it's named Gesher HaChaim Street, after his perhaps most well-known and influential halachic work on the laws of mourning. Um, he pioneered uh, on on the laws of Shemitah, on the international dateline, on the base HaMikdash and Yerushalayim, a multi-volume work called Ha'ir HaKadosh Ve'HaMikdash, Birka Sachama, Women in Halacha, 
the laws of Eretz Yisrael, where he clarifies which day to observe Purim in Yerushalayim's new neighborhoods, and more than anything else, with Zmanim in Halacha, through his book Bain Hashmashais, and much more so through his legendary calendar, which ultimately became the standard calendar used in Israel and to a lesser extent worldwide. So let's go through that list one at a time. We'll start with Zmanim, which is probably his most famous legacy. In 1905, with the encouragement of Rebelio David Rabinovich uh, uh, Ta'imim, Rabinovich Ta'imim, the Adderes, Rebbechil Michal Tukachinsky, um, initiated the publishing of an annual halachic calendar. Later on, Rav Cook was involved in the project as well. The calendar had two major components, and I'm going to go through each of them separately. Firstly, it contained halachic rulings, as well as many customs for prayer, Shabbos, Torah reading, Yom Tovim, etc. All types of customs and halachic uh, uh, rulings. I'm not getting to the Zmanum yet. That's the second component. Now, these customs and halachic rulings. All of these rulings and customs he recorded were according to the Prushim tradition of the students of the Vilna Gain in Yerushalayim, which was the community he was associated with and presumably he printed the calendar for. Due to the eventual popularity of this calendar, this was to have a far-reaching impact on the development of the religious community in Israel in a general sense until this very day. In the post-war, there were Polish and Lithuanian and Galician and Hungarian and many, many, many more uh, Jew- Jewish communities, remnants of Jewish communities who arrived in Yerushalayim, who arrived in the land of Israel, and their local customs were abandoned in favor of the so-called accepted Israel, Israel customs, Minigaret Yisrael, as enumerated in the calendar, which everyone was using, of Rav, Rav My understanding is that this soon reached almost mythical proportions. Instead of identifying these customs as Rav Tikachinsky's opinion, or the customs of the students of the Vilna Gain Prushim in Yerushalayim, it came to be falsely referred to as Minig Yerushalayim, or even Minig Eretz Yisrael. What's even more noteworthy is the fact that at the time Rabbi Chilmichel recorded these customs in his calendar, there were at least two other, at least two other, if not more, communities in Yerushalayim who did not follow these customs. The Sephardic community, which preceded the Ashkenazi one by centuries, and the Hasidic community. So it is therefore quite strange that Jews who arrived from diverse communities in the diaspora following the war felt compelled to follow the Prussian customs as recorded in Rav Dikashinsky's calendar and then to justify that behavior by rechristening it with the title Minig Yerushalayim. It is difficult to speculate, but it would be hard to imagine that this was Rav Dikashinsky's intention when he published it. it to, to impose his views on a wide spectrum of the Jewish people, it's hard to imagine. He probably never anticipated that his calendar would have the reach and influence and popularity that it would ultimately have. And he saw himself as printing this for his own community. This is a huge topic, which is very relevant and somewhat controversial, and understanding contemporary Israel religious life and customs. But I think we'll save this for another time. The second major component of the calendar was the halachic times, the zmanim. Uh, for prayer and for every other conceivable facet of religious life which is regulated by time, such as fast days. As mentioned, Rebichil Michal Tukajinsky had from his youth both a love and a knack for this particular nexus of science and halacha, and he devoted his life to it. He formulated parameters for halachic times, calculated, based them, calculated them based on local conditions, studied all the relevant topics in depth, and then did field work. He spent months examining, literally going out to observe sunrise and sunset times in Yerushalayim. He would go out and personally observe it. 
day in and day out, for months. Uh, based on his research and his personal extensive observations, he reached conclusions and formulas how to permanently calculate all halachic times. His conclusions were accepted by many other rabbis, including the Bedats of the Eid HaKaredis, and have since taken on a life of their own worldwide as a specific position ascribed to him. While preparing this episode, I became aware that in many shuls in the United States, an announcement is made specifically on fast days when the time of day ends, according to Rav Tikachinsky. Uh, and I found that interesting, so I even titled this episode according to Rav Tikachinsky. It should be noted that no such announcement is made in Israeli shuls, and that is because his manim formulas in this country are almost universally accepted. So the posted time and calendar time are synonymous and are, for the most part, automatically Rav Tchitschinsky's time. He personally published the calendar annually for exactly 50 years until his passing in 1955, and his son, Rav Aaron Tchitschinsky, continued its publication until his passing about 10 years ago, and his son, of course, continues it as we speak. Um, so this was his impact on Zmanim in Halacha, um, a fascinating topic. He was a halacha pioneer and had a decisive impact in many areas. One of, another one was the dateline. The famous international dateline question when thousands of Polish Jewish refugees were in Kobe, Japan, in the early part of the war, having reached there on visas distributed by Chiyuni Sugihara and Kovna in Lithuania, and now they end up in Kobe, Japan, and they need to decide which side of the international dateline Japan was, and as a result, which date to observe Shabbos and possibly Yom Kippur, if they were to stay there that long. I devoted an episode to this subject quite a way back, so you can check that out. But uh, now recently, Rabbi Mordechai Kuber has authored an incredible, all-encompassing, and the definitive work on the subject, both from a halachic and historical standpoint. Either way, among the refugees, of course, there was many yeshiva students, there was the Mir Yeshiva, there was Tamchei Tmimim of Lubavitch, there was Yeshiva's Chachmi Lublin, a small contingent, and others. And when the Ger Rebbe, Rav Mordechai Alter, who is later known as the Imre Emes, he receives the question, well, he's already in Palestine, as to which date to observe Shabbos, and the international dateline uh, question comes to his attention. He refers it to Rav Tukachinsky, given his prominent position among the local Paiskim in Yerushalayim, as well as his known expertise in deciding Zmanim in Halacha. And Rav Tukachinsky reaches his own conclusions and was invited to present them at the well-known rabbinical conference convened by the chief rabbi, Rabbi Isaac Halevi Herzog, to discuss the matter. The attending rabbis accepted Rav Tikachinsky's position, which was to accept the local Saturday in Japan as the Shabbos and not to observe Shabbos on Sunday. This, of course, differed from the Chazanish's opinion, which was to observe Shabbos on Sunday. Rav Tikachinsky followed uh, this uh, issuing this psak at this rabbinical conference with the publication of an entire book devoted to the subject entitled Hayomam Bekadur Haaretz. And the Chazanish followed with a pamphlet entitled Kuntris Yudches Shaos, where he critiques Rav Tikachinsky's position. The two maintained a lively correspondence discussing the matter and even met face to face to further discuss it, but each one maintained his position. Of course, we mentioned the Gesher HaChayim and the Laws of Mourning, which became the first classic in that area of Halacha's field. Uh, any mourning Halacha compendiums which were compiled in the ensuing century were largely based on his work. He cleared the, the, the playing field for a very relevant and important Halachic topic of the Laws of Mourning. 
And we can go through every single one of his uh, um, svarim. I, 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 I think that this just gives a taste of his impact in halacha. There's one last point that I want to talk about. His books are also full of history. He not only loved history, but he was incredibly knowledgeable. When he covers essential topics in halacha, he connects the history with the halacha, which is fascinating, very knowledgeable. And he attached importance to incorporating the historical narrative and its development into his halachic works to trace the halacha through history. In his work on Shemitah, for instance, he covers the history of the Heter Mechira, which we're in the middle of, of that series as well. And, and uh, if you're ready to sponsor that, you can be in touch with me about that as well. In his Yerushalayim and Beis HaMikdash books, which is about a five-volume work, it's floated with history. It's ostensibly about the halachic aspects of Yerushalayim and the Beis HaMikdash, but it's filled with very interesting history. An entire history book is devoted to the topic of the courtyard, the Chatzar of Rabbi Yudah Chassid, where the Chur Vishul in the Old City is. Uh, so he actually authored a history book on its own merits, and uh, I think that's uh, interesting as well. So this is a little. Uh, this was about Rabbi Chil Michal Tukachinsky. You, this is Yehuda Gaber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can uh, reach me at Yehuda at yehudagaber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.